This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. This is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Paul Grain Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... The OGL Saga. And 30s Science Fiction Cinema. Did you know that both of us, Ken and Robin, have written books and games for Atlas Games? This month, they're featuring products by us on sale. We're so honored. Atlas Games is doing a special for our listeners only. Use coupon code KENANDROBIN23, that's spell out A-N-D in Ken and Robin, to save 20% on your games and books at atlas-games.com. Like Robin's action-packed feng shui and conspiracy-drenched over the edge. Or Ken's mini-mythos series of Cthulhu-themed children's books, like Goodnight Azathoth and Clifford the Big Red God. So who writes our banter in these Atlas ads? Our good friend Michelle Nephew. Sometimes I think that power goes to her head a little. Like last month where she had me singing Christmas carols for Weird Little Elf? Yeah, I kind of noticed that. Yeah, this month Atlas Games is running a sale on products that two of us have written for them. But what does that have to do with me repeating, Michelle is a goddess and we bow before her greatness? Her script cues are even worse. I can't stop hitting myself. Ken, just because it's in the script notes doesn't mean you have to actually slap yourself. It's it's audio. It's a podcast. Our listeners can't see you. I don't feel so good. The things we do for our listeners. But at least this month, they're getting 20% off on books and games written by the two of us. Just head over to atlas-games.com for your exclusive discount on feng shui, over the edge, and mini mythos products. Then use the coupon code KENANDROBIN23 at checkout. The rattle of dice, the thump of... Hold on. We've got no time for rattling dice. We've got no time for thumping miniatures. We've got angry tweets to send and read, Robin. We've got balance sheets to examine. We've got spare change <laughs> yeah, to l- dig out. term plans to reevaluate. From behind the couch, because we are in the business of gaming. Where beloved Patreon backer Michael Gimar asks us what to make of the OGL... Saga and Robin right. and Michael is a stand-in for many who are asking. Yes, many people, both beloved Patreon backers and uh, passers-by, I think, who are right. curious about this. Uh, how far back do we go? Do we go back to 2000 of the creation of the Open Game License or OGL? Uh, set up the background. Well, this is for posterity. So when yeah. future scholars want to figure out what the heck can happen this time around, mm-hmm. I think you will have to. Explain briefly, uh, since you've volunteered to explain, the history of the open license for D&D and the expectations that it created in order for us to then describe how the expectations have recently been turned on their head a couple of times and then turned back in a surprising new direction. Mm -hmm. I guess also, before we proceed with that, though, full disclosure, you are a former employee of Wizards. Both of us are occasional freelancers and consultants, including for... Uh, wizard. So I think if people are looking for the their angriest anger to be mirrored back at them by us, I think we're going to try and adopt a, a somewhat more 
analytical. Also, also in general, unless you're angry at Joseph Campbell, you're not going to get your angriest anger mirrored back by this podcast on almost any topic, I feel. Yes, I think, you know, wry sarcasm we, is, is yeah. as much as we... A biting irony is, is right. about as close as we get. Also, you know, Vladimir Putin. We're not happy yeah. with him. We're not happy with him, but, you know, so far, whatever. Anyway, the larger point we're making is that in 1999, Wizards of the Coast, which had bought Dungeons & Dragons along with the rest of TSR back in the day, was getting ready to release the third edition of Dungeons & Dragons. And... The, at that time, brand manager, I suppose he was, Ryan Dancy, ran some numbers and to his own satisfaction demonstrated that plenty of people played Dungeons and Dragons, but many of them played old editions that made no money. And the previous two editions of Dungeons and Dragons, again, according to Ryan's analysis, had run themselves into a ditch by overproducing supporting material. They either produced way too many adventures and spent too much producing them, did not make enough money on the comeback, or in the case specifically of second edition, produced too many game worlds, subworlds, Ravenloft, Dark Sun, etc., that competed with each other and fractured. Yeah, they were line splitters, so that once you became a Dark Sun fan, you stopped being a general D&D fan. Exactly. And that they competed amongst themselves, and they fratricided their own market. And so Ryan developed... I think what was pretty strategically clever, a set of inviting traps and the inviting trap was to open up the rules of Dungeons and Dragons and the right to uh, produce Dungeons and Dragons tie in material adventures, setting books, whatever books that at their level, they didn't think they could justify making money on given the uh, overhead that it took them to produce a book. Right. But they knew that smaller companies could do that, and that they invited them to do that with an open gaming license, the license basically being that you were free to use anything within a subset of Dungeons & Dragons called the System Reference Document, as long as you adhered to the terms of the license, which was print the license and make sure that other people can use mechanics that you introduce. So the notion is to build a community of Dungeons & Dragon design mechanics that would simultaneously take away from wizards the need to evolve the game so that they could just keep printing core books, dumb, fat, and happy, which they had the exclusive right to. They had the right to the brand, but the support material would be given, the the opportunity would be given to wizards' competitors, and this had two effects. One, it flooded the market with support material, preventing wizards from producing too many settings or adventures because they weren't needed, and so wizards would keep producing core Dungeons and Dragons or the occasional expansion book that was going to bring in enough money to be worth the problem of creating it. And also it tied a lot of wizard supposed competitors into the business of providing support material for it and drove attention for gamers back to D and D back to Dungeons and Dragons slowly leaching away. It was starting to look like a situation where, uh, you know, if not, you know, vampire becoming the dominant role-playing game that, D&D would just become one among many. Its status as the main brand was under threat. And although some of the things that Ryan thought would happen didn't, like, for example, third-party people designing new rule subsystems that were then be folded into the main subsystem because they were just so universally great and recognizable as such, mm-hmm. it absolutely did the main thing uh, that he was shooting for, which was reviving the value of that brand and bringing it back to prominence within 
tabletop, which was huge. It sucked all of the energy back into D&D. It became very difficult to launch any other role-playing games for a while. All of the mind space was taken up with that. It did have the big downside, however, of the quality control was not great. And so people, for a while, could make a lot of money, sell a lot of books, just saying, we have a new dwarf book. And it took a while for people to realize that, oh, the dwarf books by this company are not any good. They just mm-hmm. slap things down and are obviously, you know, writing a mile a minute without playtesting. And and so eventually this led to a, a glut and a, a struggle for uh, retailers who overordered. But the first goal of, you know, bringing that brand back to its preeminence in tabletop, which it has occupied ever since, even, you know, for whatever vicissitudes have followed, Brian absolutely achieved it with that policy. And on that grounds alone, it was a brilliant business move to enact at the time. Yeah. And it, it certainly did basically what he did. It drew people away from even older editions of Dungeons and Dragons because third edition became very buzzy. People were producing tons of exciting material for it. And you only needed to fall in love with one piece of new material to decide, well, I might as well upgrade my game to the new edition so I can play with this cool new setting material. And sure enough, you were back in the main fold. And that sort of a jujitsu move held until Wizards of the Coast began to think about releasing a fourth edition Dungeons and Dragons. And at the time, brand manager Bill Slavisek decided that he would go ahead without the OGL for fourth edition, that there would be no fourth edition SRD that you could produce material for. And and this was a a decision that was somewhat surprising to people who had been told there would be. It was very surprising. It was held very closely to Bill, possibly only to Bill. Our sources differ. But the uh, decision to not release fourth edition as an SRD and to not release it as this very open, very forgiving license, well... There were other things that made a fourth edition have a bit of a upward climb. It was a more tactical game than its predecessor. It had other different effects, but fundamentally what that did was cause Dungeons and Dragons' largest competitor to emerge, a game called Pathfinder that was basically a playtested version of Dungeons and Dragons 3.5 to become the other big lion in the pride of not just F20, but of all tabletop games. And by forking their own audience by leaving the OGL, Wizards did the thing that Ryan had attempted to prevent ever happening, the creation of a competitor to Wizards in the space of dungeoning and dragoning. Right, because there there are a couple of patterns that are going to recur here. One is that the job of brand manager is one that people occupy for a relatively short period of time, not even the life cycle of one D&D edition, typically. And so there can be radical shifts in strategy and direction around how important the or good the open license is. And also there's the fact that the business model of D&D is to release a new version about every eight years and that the having an open license and having alternatives throws a bit of a, a spanner in that. And so there's not necessarily a gamer-driven demand for we need a new edition every eight years. In fact, there's always considerable resistance to a new edition at first because I think even more so than people who play a range of other games, there's a lot of people who are not so much role players as they are D&D players. So that's their thing. D&D has a high learning cost because 
It's got system mastery. It's got uh, all sorts that, you know, it's crunchiness, which varies from edition to edition is very important to people. And learning a new edition of a game that is somewhat different is actually harder than learning a completely new game. And so yeah. there's always considerable resistance and the part of bringing out a new edition, which is necessary for uh, the business model, is always an uphill PR climb and one that has to be managed very carefully. Well, in 2014, they managed it much better with 5th edition, which came out and to great hoopla, it was announced, uh, Bill Slavisek having by now departed the company, that it would be back under the OGL and that there would be an even larger, more generous system reference document released to go along with 5th edition. Right. And for those who, a system reference document isn't the entire game, but it's enough for other people to base things on in the game. And one of the core issues with them is dividing out setting material that is considered to be part of the D&D brand, making sure that's not in the SRD, because uh, D&D is both, as we will get to in more detail uh, when we come closer to the present, is both a game and a brand. And right. some of those things are sometimes in conflict with one another. So, for example, you know, certain creatures and characters in the setting, the ideal is to not have them in the system reference document so that you can license them to be in a movie, for example. Right. So... In 2014, as I believe everyone listening to this podcast knows, 5th edition drops to general acclaim, and as the old crowd ecology comes back around Dungeons & Dragons, guess what? It produces more wonderful things for 5th edition, not to the extent of the 3rd edition bubble, but a, a good number, and 5th edition goes from strength to strength to strength. The rise of the streaming movement, which we've talked about, drives fifth edition even farther because everyone who runs Dungeons and Dragons on a stream runs fifth edition by and large. Right. And once again, we have an explosive growth of the D and D brand that is, you know, that is sanctioned by wizards, but is built by people outside of wizards. Exactly. First of all, with the people who produced all the D 20 product and now the streamers and the people who are again, producing all of this uh, material under the open license. Right. So, uh, you would think you have a global brand that has been going from strength to strength. You have a brand new artistic medium that has adopted your game and your brand uh, as the core of its identity. What could possibly go wrong? Well, the answer is Hasbro. Right, because Hasbro, <laughs> you may think that Hasbro is a game and toy manufacturer, but Hasbro is a brand company. It's a, it, it owns and licenses properties. And so you're periodically going to have a situation where uh, new people at Hasbro look at D&D, a brand that has a massive cultural footprint, but compared to the size of its awareness, doesn't bring in the kind of money that other brands of its awareness level typically should. And it's not just suddenly that people at Wizards of the Coast have been asking themselves the question, how do we get people... Uh, who are aware of D&D and play D&D to give us money for their commitment to D&D. And part of the answer of that is subscription service. Another part of the answer that they have always wanted to implement and so far uh, have never gotten across the finish line on, or in fact, you know, out of the blocks on, is a digital version of the D&D experience that people want to play. Right. As opposed to simply licensing the Dungeons & Dragons sub-brands to other game companies to make Baldur's Gate or whatever, which they've done very successfully. Right, those have done very well. But the actual tabletop 
being done in, they're looking for ways to have everybody in a gaming group, not just the GM, keep giving them money. Mm-hmm. Uh, and new people will arrive. And the question is, how do we make this be more like a normal brand? Or, you know, the head of Wizards said to shareholders, this brand is under monetized, uh, which is business speak for we would like to make more money from this brand. How do we do that? And the problem is, is that D&D is not a normal brand. It's never going to be a normal brand because so much of the value of the brand is tied up in people's own experiences of it because it is an interactive medium, even more interactive than video gaming, because you are not just responding to prompts. You're creating something yourself that you feel belongs to you. And so the problem with tabletop brands is that they're full of tabletop gamers (laughs) with their tabletop expectations. And among those expectations now is that they will be able to participate in it creatively and publish those things for other people and rise in the hierarchy of status. And sometimes now, even in the world of Kickstarter, uh, make a buck or two on it with something that they feel is theirs and so ken what what just happened well what just happened is that in february of 2022 and i believe this is the author of your statement that um uh, dnd is under monetized a woman named cynthia williams is brought in by the new ceo of hasbro to become the head of wizards and digital that's wizards of the coast and digital and the joining of those indicates exactly what you're saying that they're attempting to create an online dungeons and dragons experience that can be driven by a subscriber platform the platform that they rolled out is called D beyond this was attempted for fourth edition the last time people tried to monkey with the ogl and it was a resounding failure so just put a pin in that but the old brand manager of Dungeons and Dragons, a game designer of great repute, and our personal friend, uh, Ray Winninger, left Wizards of the Coast in October of 2022, uh, was replaced by a fellow named Dan Rawson, who was announced as a brand new, uh, they reorganized everything in the wake of Ray's departure, and Dan Rawson becomes apparently what we called the brand manager, but he has a new exciting corporate speak title, but is the guy who's going to move D&D finally into proper brand compliance, I guess, is his is his job. And we're inferring that he did not come out in, you know, stormtrooper armor and announce that he was going to, you know, um, uh, tighten his grip as the rebel system slipped away. None of that happened, but that's what happened. So the thing to make that work, however, is to prevent other more nimble and agile tabletop companies from having their own virtual experience where you could play D&D under the open game license. And that obviously would be an immediate competitor to the D&D Beyond structure. And so partially to cut that off at the pass and partially because there were rumors of other big players who are desperately trying to monetize virtual space. And I've heard Meta, the former Facebook, nay Facebook, uh, being brooded about as one of the companies exploring this space. There is action in this space. There's action. And so they wanted to take control back of playing Dungeons and Dragons online. That drove a new version of the open game license that they promulgated or or that they were going to promulgate that escaped. Yes. Well, here's the problem. First of all, the original open game license, though it did not contain the apparently magical word irrevocable was designed 
So you couldn't do that to be a perpetual license. The word perpetual is in right. It. Certainly, there's lots of other evidence by the main yes. uh, people involved, including yes. both Ryan and Peter Atkinson, who was then uh, head of Wizards, that that was the intent. And right. so that, that's a big mountain that would have had to have gotten over. Right. But their decision was if they changed the open game license and make everyone sign on to a new open game license, they can get around this problem of immediate competition and the market space that they've identified as crucial. Rumors begin leaking out in mid-November that they're going to change the OGL. This, I assume, is because when you are going to write a new license that immediately headlocks a bunch of very big players, you offer them an opportunity to buy in at a reduced price so that then they're on your side defending this new, more acquisitive, dare I say, predatory version of the license. Right. But but this new version that you're offering the people that you're trying to get on side, it would have to be very, very attractive to those people. In theory, have to be. But if you're offering a terrible version of the new license and the version, for example, included Wizards' ability to shut down any, any product or service under any uh, grounds that they found desirable with no recourse. It included uh, large royalties. It included absolute bans on uh, some kinds of derivative content. These were the sorts of rumors that were coming out in November. And the goal is to get the big players to say, well, we'll take the much less onerous version of the new license so that we can still be big players in the Dungeons and Dragons space. Right. So speaking, Ken, yeah. things spiraling out of control, <laughs> our single segment here has suddenly turned into a double segment. Right. So let's uh, pop into uh, a quick commercial and then we'll be back with more of the business of gaming and the OGL license. The skies above New Olympus are patrolled by caped crusaders, but these superior beings are far from heroes. They wield their powers with reckless disregard, serving the interests of corporate overseers and silencing those who oppose their will. You are Clara Keenig, investigative journalist for the pedestrian newspaper. You intend to prove that the privileged superhuman elite do not yet hold a monopoly on justice. Welcome to Alter Egomania, the newest setting for the Gumshoe one-to-one system. Featuring a quick start rules guide, printable problem and edge cards, and a starter adventure. Alter Egomania contains everything you need to run a one-player, one-GM game set in a universe of corrupt superheroes. Exclusively available in PDF. The exciting format unaffected by global paper shortages. That can't get stuck in customs. That's waiting for you right now. At the Pelgrane Press web store. Or drive through RPG. Okay, and we're back with the business of gaming, and uh, it turned out there was a lot of backstory. I discovered this when when Valerie saw this on uh, my wife, who's not a gamer, saw this on social media, and and uh, asked for an explanation. <laughs> and I too had to go back to the year two thousand to provide all of the context. So now we're back in the present day, 
And the leaked version of this uh, deal, which can one of us just characterized as predatory. <laughs> mm-hmm. It has been characterized by others as predatory. Yes. The leaked version certainly sounded very predatory to me when I began hearing about it. Well, in terms of things that we would want to sign ourselves, were we foolish enough to run game companies? Oh, yes. <laughs> there's that, that would not have qualified. It would, we would, would not have been have an absolutely others. not type decision. Yes. So... The details are beginning to dribble out. And again, we do not have proof that this happened, but my guess is that one of the large companies that was invited to see an early version said, well, I don't want to look bad in front of Kickstarter and Critical Role and Paizo and all these other guys, but maybe if I accidentally leave it out where the intern can find it, it'll get on Twitter. And indeed, that is what happened. Right. Another theory that if we were analyzing some completely fictional organization, like, uh, you know, some sort of spy agency is also there are lots of people still at Wizards who are uh, more steeped in tabletop and might have been out of the loop on this decision and might have predicted exactly what then went on to happen. (laughs) I, I feel it is a dead certainty that someone at Wizards predicted this down to the ground. about what will happen because someone at Wizards was here during 4th edition when, in fact, And and intrepid reporter Linda Codega, who will show up shortly in this story in a a more fulsome manner, certainly had a lot of sources, it seems, on Wizards. No shortage. (laughs) Yeah. So the the question of which where the leak came from is one with many possible answers. Right. So, Watsi begins a sort of a ham-fisted damage control attempt where they say, oh, the royalties are just for big companies. If you're a little company, don't worry about it. And this won't have anything to do with paper game production. If you're making a, a supplement, you could just keep on keeping on. We don't mean any of that. And of course, what that creates is um, when someone comes out, you know, smoldering and covered in blood and says, don't worry, I'm not going to kill you. Many questions are raised. It, it raises more questions than it, than it answers. So, on January 5th, the OGL 1.1, as it was dubbed, was leaked in full via a journalist at io9, Linda Codega, and they, by then, had, as you say, a billion sources, or at least a few very highly placed ones, and were confident enough in the version, because, of course, many documents that leak have watermarks, they have slightly different phraseologies to determine, you know, who was the leaker that leaked it to the journalist. And I assume that Linda Codega did basic OPSEC to strip out any sort of identifying text or whatever, and then released the OGL 1.1 in full, which was, in fact, just as terrible as everyone had said. Right. And went as far as rescinding the previous OGL so that you couldn't even stick with the old OGL that was based on three or based on five that, uh, according to what, uh, this giant corporation with lots of lawyers said it was going to set out to do that, uh, you would essentially have to, uh, and at that point wasn't even clear whether people would be able to continue to publish the things that they had already published were Watsi to get its way. Yes. The, the, and again, the notion, the threat of revoking OGL 1.0 or 1.0a because there was a tiny tweak to the, a language long ago, the threat of that revocation left a lot of people with games that existed that were based on that, looking at their own legal basis in case a giant multinational corporation with a million well-paid lawyers decided to sue you for producing, say, 13th Age, to pick a game at random that is produced under the OGL 1.0. 
And so there was a great deal of, of scrambling around by various game companies and a great deal of, of, of entirely justified internet outrage. And I do not say this about internet outrage a lot, Robin. You know this. So we, you, you are mirroring everybody's anger just like they want. Just like they want. But I did not particularly mirror it online. What with having been shot? I just want to <laughs> drop that in there. Oh, that's your excuse. That's my excuse. Exactly. So, Paizo, the largest competitor to Wizards in the tabletop space, and certainly in the F20 space, um, announced that they would be releasing a new version of Pathfinder with no dependence on the SRD that was dependent on things that they felt were already common to role-playing. Right. But here we're getting into two separate concepts. Exactly. Which bleed into each other because there's... The license. So people want new legal text under which to release open content if the OGL is going away. And Mm -hmm. for some people, they choose not to do it through Creative Commons, which is very simple, but too simple for some people because they want to be able to specify that certain content is outside the purview of the Creative Contents license. And for those people, they prefer the security of a license designed specifically for tabletop. And and this is the and this is one of the good parts of the architecture of the original OGL is that it saw that problem from the jump and separated out what's called product identity, what we were talking about, from the open licensed part. And right. that you could release a book for Dungeons and Dragons and say all of my cool elf names and my the layout of my dungeon and everything else that's a fun and adventure in this is released as product identity and you can't use it, but it's using Dungeons and Dragons rules, which are under the OGL. And you can go ahead and use my new fireball rule that I put into the game. Right. And that was very, very, very well engineered in 2000. Right. And and so the, the orc, the new legal text would mm-hmm. solve one of the problems, but it wouldn't necessarily without possibility of litigation solve the other problem, which is how much of D and D and Pathfinder are in fact, lingua franca available for anyone to use and not trademarked or copyrighted and how much is owned by someone in particular. And so the project of designing a replacement for the SRD part of it, the rules and the stuff that would provide the new essence, the alternative backbone of anything going forward that would be a legal F20 game uh, provided by anyone other than Watsi was still an open question. And right. so suddenly a bunch of people... And, and many, many companies had announced that they were going to be releasing SRDs for their new rule system. Right. I believe Paizo said that they'd be releasing an SRD for their new Pathfinder. ORC, by the way, stands for Open Role-Playing Creative License. So that's fun. Kobold Games is producing a new system called Black Flag that they were going to release as open. Right. But if there's six different open F20 games, yeah. there's still the problem of which one becomes the... Right. The, the obvious one that everybody else bases their secondary material on. Yes. And so we will not get to see the reality, though, where those all fight it out or all get together in a room and meet to decide what all the attributes are called because... Because on January 19th, Wizards released another statement, this one by a fellow named Kyle Brink, who is identified as D&D head. So I don't know if that means he is under Dan Rawson or that Dan Rawson suddenly found something important to do on the other side of Seattle. I don't know the Byzantine internal mechanics, but new name shows up on the we're so sorry 
press release. We rolled a one, they said. Someone was very proud of themselves, probably took the rest of the afternoon off after writing that. And they released what was then dubbed OGL 1.2, which contained fewer of the god-awful parts of OGL 1.1, but still contained a morals clause under which wizards could cancel your license and end your product at any time of their choosing with no recourse. And it included the cancellation of OGL 1.0, again, the basis on which, you know, 1,500 companies were doing business last year. Right. And there was an accompanying assertion that you would be able to continue to sell products you'd already created, but that's small consolation. Right. Yes. It's, yeah, if you wanted to create new products, then you were in theory SOL or you had to sign right, on to this if the, new. If the standard is that they can change the license themselves unilaterally at any time, right. they can do it again. Yes. And the thing is that if you strip out the obviously odious part or most of the obviously odious parts in 1.2, there's no rule that says you can't put them back in in OGL 1.3 and we have to go through this dance another time. And the eagerness to produce a giant series of fifth edition game material or Dungeons Dragons game material would be slaked by that level of uncertainty because, as we may have mentioned at the beginning of the business of gaming, this is not a hobby of idle millionaires. This is a hobby of people who are basically could be making more money working at a well-run hamburger franchise much less putting their creative soul out there. So this is a uh, a suboptimal situation if you're operating in that level of corporate uncertainty. And certainly any bank that knew anything wouldn't loan you money over a sort of a thing where your main competitor could at any time cut the groundwork out from under you when you produce a product. You know, I wouldn't grant a loan if I were a mean bank. So And could own your material. Exactly. Well. That, that was another element of 1.1 is that they owned all subsidiary material and all the rights to it. 1.2 sort of soft-pedaled that, but it became less clear. And again, the act of having a 1.2 implies there could be a 1.3 that is basically 1.1 in a slightly nicer hat. Right. So that walk back pleased nobody. Actually, there was... A couple of few people that it pleased in the sort of, well, they're making an effort type way, you know. And at this point, the downside of having a subscription model <laughs> becomes apparent because when you have a subscription model, as you and I do, can for this very podcast, for this very podcast, you don't have to subscribe to hear it. But we are dependent on uh, Patreon backers without whom we would have stopped this podcast years ago is that we can only irk people so much yeah. before, you know, we have to like bring in a new non-irked person for every person we irk and who leaves because they are irked. And so therefore, you know, if we were to uh, suddenly set about doing something that, you know, outraged, you know, even 10 to 20% of our beloved backers, which of course we would never, we would never do, do because we, we beloved you because we beloved you. But when we started to see those numbers tick down, we would look for, you know, apologies and a way to, to walk that back. Because when I think with traditional brands, people think of their customers as being locked into those brands, that their brand loyalty is something that is just fixed unless something radically changes about the product. Well, when you have a subscription model, whether you're Netflix or us, or D&D Beyond, the customers aren't trapped in there with you. <laughs> yeah. You're trapped in there with them. And if, and if you really upset them, they start to cancel. And in fact, apparently, the process of 
canceling D&D Beyond is labor intensive for the support staff for whom I deeply sympathize. Yes. And very apparent. Who asked for none of this, I'm sure. At head office, they started to see an impact in their bottom line for the very thing that this whole thing was set out to lock down and facilitate. And so they asked for, for input from their subscribers. Yeah. They put out a survey that you could take online that said, we're not so bad, all right. But if we were bad, in what way would we be bad? And did you like the old license? Did you care? Lots of other questions of that nature. And on January 27th, Kyle Brink, the speaker to chaos, came back out and said, wow, we got 15,000 responses to our survey and roughly 80% of you, depending on exactly the question, hated, hated, hated OGL 1.2, were mad at us, wanted OGL 1.0 back, and felt that even the SRD did not go far enough. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to retreat to the OGL 1.0. We're going to stick with that. We're not revoking it. We're not changing it. And as a special bonus, just for playing in our exciting LARP, we're making the 5.1 Dungeons and Dragons system resource document, the SRD, we're making it Creative Commons. And they did. It wasn't, we're going to, it's follow this link to the Creative Commons website, where sure enough, the entire Dungeons and Dragons SRD is. And that, Robin, is an even bigger deal. And and Ken, yeah. we've gone over yet again, and we're not done talking. So it's time for another commercial, and then we'll come back for a third segment. Oh, my God. Of the business of gaming. The Best of Askfageln is now available at DriveThruRPG. All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled F-E-N-I-X. Can now be grabbed in special English editions. Containing stellar gaming material from our own Ken Height. And such other recurring stalwarts as Graham Davis. And Pete Nash. Also find Dice, the gorgeous photo book celebrating that classic gaming accessory. And Freeway Warrior, the series of post-apocalyptic choose-your-adventures by Joe Dever. And if you speak Swedish, not English... That's Swedish, not English. You can delight in every original issue of Phoenix. And the new Sagebrush and Six Guns role-playing game, Western. How do you say slap leather varmint in Swedish? Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that. That's the best of Astfageln on DriveThru. Celebrate the freeing of the beholders by joining such many-eyed backers as... Scott Stefanski. Ryan McClelland. Pedro Garcia. Kevin H. And Jan Zaleski. And we're back yet again. So we've got to the end of the, of the saga, which turned out to be complicated and har- hard to narrate. I now regret trying to leave anything for posterity. <laughs> posterity should, frankly, do its own work. It can, it can go on Linda Codega's podcast, and I'm sure they have a terrific podcast. But, but Ken, posterity is your brand. Uh, Speaking of brand management. So, speaking of whether things are irrevocable or not, mm-hmm. Creative Commons is irrevocable. Yeah. Once you put it in Creative Commons, there's no takesy-backsies. Mm-mm. And 
surprisingly, some elements that you would have expected them to pull out of the SRD before putting it in Creative Commons uh, wound up in the Creative Commons. So certain names, at any rate, can now be freely used. I'm not sure whether anything surrounding those names can be used. So this attempt to clarify may still complicate, you know, if you want to pitch a Strahd von Zarevich show to Netflix, good luck to you. Yeah. They, they may want more than he's a vampire count. <laughs> yes. And, and when they find out you can't use the word Ravenloft, which is the actual brand, they may shake their heads uh, sadly and pass. Right. So this is may tempt people to use more of Wizards IP than in fact Wizards made available. Uh, which is a mistake you can make, say, with Cthulhu material, that some of which is actually owned by Chaosium. Right. And and some of which is still owned by Arkham House, frankly. Right. So this, I guess, brings us to the question of what what have we learned? And I think one issue that is going to continue to be a problem is that there are only so many people who have the sort of corporate management experience. And as we've already suggested, that is a job people tend to cycle in and out of because modern executive careers, you bounce from place to place, you need to be steeped not only in the traditional brand management to succeed in this particular post, but you need kind of deep tabletop experience to know in your bones what is going to cause your subscriber base to revolt. Mm. And the number of people who fit that definition, I think Wizards has already hired and cycled through. <laughs> and in some cases, they've let them go. Yeah. And so they, <laughs> you're, they're going to have to like, for the next generation, are they going to raise tabletop people from within and send them for management training to make sure that there's a new generation of people who can do both? That seems unlikely. So I guess what will have to happen is that they'll have to have someone another thing about corporations at this level is institutional knowledge is that you and I were able to uh, with some research on your part rattle off this story but not everybody can oh. and the sort of third rail of messing with the customer base and the very particular very specific very proprietary feelings of that customer base is is something that you know everybody entering the D&D space at Wizards should you know, get a brief a PowerPoint on a day one. But I guess to really have that institutional knowledge and make sure there's someone in the room to hit the alarm button before all of these unexpected consequences kick in, they're going to have to pick someone to freeze in carbonite. And, you know, there'll be a notice, you know, take Dave out of suspended animation to tell us what happened in 2023. They'll have Hari Seldon in his box. Right, because eight years from now, there's going to be another version of D&D, and there will probably be another conversation that's like, okay, so tell me about this brand that I'm in charge of. We own this brand, right? Uh, sort of. Funny story. Yeah. <laughs> what do you mean, sort of? Oh, well, there's an open license, and the gamers also sort of feel that they own it. Okay, but so anyone can do a D&D thing? Well, they can't call it D&D, but it's D&D. They just can't call it that. So could Disney do a new version of D&D? Well, they couldn't call it D&D. But other than that, it would resemble D&D in every detail. Yeah. And can they do it on a virtual tabletop or like an electronic version? Uh, probably. Yeah. So someone, you know, the next time around, someone is going to say, well, how do we shut this down? Because it's going to be a perpetual tension between the expectations of a normal brand and the realities of the very abnormal brand that is D&D. And uh, that, I guess, will be a problem for us around episode 900 to discuss, Robin. 
if I have my math right. As long as we we keep our beloved uh, backers happy. Right, yeah. But the sort of, at the moment, where we are is, and I there is, as you say, this tension will always be with us. Uh, Russia will always seek a warm water port. That's just the nature of the beast. But we have won. We have won. There has been one. <laughs> Angry subscribers, of which we are neither. Right. A, a great victory. I, I mean, for the creative ancillary Dungeons & Dragons community, because making 5.1 Creative Commons is an enormous step. It means it can't ever be revoked. So, from now till the heat death of the universe, assuming you don't mind playing 5th edition Dungeons & Dragons... You can play, write, consume, stream, podcast, whatever kind of, you know, ninth dimensional arts they have around the larger Metroatlantic cloud. You can still be doing Dungeons and Dragons. And that was not the case last year. That was still an open question because even though the 1.0 license was very, you know, very generous, it did not contain permanent rights to things like Dungeons and Dragons mechanics class names, spell lists, monsters, etc. That was Yes, and in fact the Creative Commons license is Dave Frozen and Carbonite. Yes. Because it now establishes that no one else next time around can make this mistake. Or as soon as they start to make this mistake, someone will say, "Oh, we we can't get it back. It's in Creative it's Commons." It's in Creative it's Commons. There yeah. Forever. So Dave, you're off the hook. Right. Yeah. You can, you know, enjoy a hot beverage without worrying that you're ruining uh, Hasbro's bottom line in 2028. So I guess that is as, as close as any story, a uh, continuing story that continues to uh, move along as, as does anything with the continuity has. So I think it's time for us to finally close this epic three part segment uh, that was designed to be one segment. <laughs> so Ken and I are going to huddle off mic and determine what our other segment is going to be for this episode. But while that happens, listen to this commercial. In Delta Green... Cosmic Terror meets Modern Conspiracy. The secret group Delta Green dedicates itself to protecting humanity from unnatural horrors. They misappropriate the resources of the U.S. government to wage a war they must at all costs keep hidden. Delta Green, the conspiracy, is the source book for the grungy, cynical era that started it all. The 1990s. Generation X becomes Generation X! In Delta Green, The Conspiracy. An updated, rearranged version of the original 1997 Delta Green sourcebook with new art and graphic design. Featuring top-secret eldritch new appendices by Shane Blackbag Ivy. And a forward by Ray, plausibly deniable Winninger. Put on your flannels, grab your duffel bag of hardware, and assemble your fake passports. Enter the Temple of the Dog, exit the Temple of Cthulhu. Never mind all the brain leakage you suffer when seeking the Nirvana of Nyarlathe Tap. Find the fungi on the Mina airfield. And why Jeremy really spoke in class today. Tell your retailer it's at that unmarked warehouse they always order from. That's Delta Green, the conspiracy. From Arc Dream Publishing. The whirr of the projector, the beam of light stabbing out over the theater... The smell of popcorn, the feel of whatever that is under our feet as we move to the center seats in the center aisle of the cinema hut. 
we are continuing with our science fiction cinema essentials series, and we have the new exciting world of sound here in part three, Robin, because we're in the decade of the 1930s. Right. And as we have foreshadowed, the 30s is the decade when science fiction cinema is horror cinema, essentially. Uh, there's one big notable exception. But other than that, we have covered all of the bangers and I think even a couple of the clangers that we're going to talk about in the Horror Essentials series already. So we may be covering these somewhat more briefly and we'll be looking at them from the lens of science fiction because the 30s, as Trail of Cthulhu tells us, was a bad time. Yeah. It was worrisome. And some of cinema is about uh, relieving you from that horror. Some of cinema is about telling you what life is like uh, really on the streets in the 30s. Horror cinema and science fiction cinema also is about warning you about terrible things being bad. So the theme that's going to keep recurring through all of these films, essentially, again, with one exception, well, one and a half exceptions, <laughs> is that the original Mary Shelley template of the threat of crossing boundaries in science and upsetting the order and unleashing uh, evil or destruction onto the world is going to be repeated again and again. And one of the reasons it's going to be repeated again and again is that the first great classic genuine essential of science fiction from the 1930s from the sound era can is james whale's frankenstein yeah which on one level is a crazy gothic that indulges in all of the imagery of horror but on another is of course as an adaptation of the first science fiction novel a work of science fiction yeah the, the novel is a attempt to grapple with the question of morality in a world without God and of consequences in a world without God. If God's not going to send bad people to hell, how are we going to know who's bad? And Mary Shelley has befit her upbringing and her uh, convictions said, well, we'll know by their actions, by their fruits, you shall know them. And she creates uh, a story of a, uh, a Faustian mad scientist, literally uh, Victor Frankenstein, who creates a monster out of human body parts. And by creating life, then flees from the responsibility of having brought this into the world. And it is act, his act of fleeing from his own responsibility that is at the core of the novel. Now, James Whale takes this material and says, also, there's a really cool monster. I cannot <laughs> emphasize this enough. And so rather than a sensitive being driven to revenge by having been abandoned, we have a uh, monster that was botched in its creation that then tries to do good, but uh, is unable to do so and is destroyed at the end by, by society in the form of a mob with torches. And that is sort of the difference uh, in many ways between film and books. And it is another big difference between science fiction and horror, because as I think we've said, whale is aiming for a horror film first and a science fiction film second, but the science fictional element, the core to the story, that there is no divinity present, that this is a matter of chemical life, or in the movie, electrical life, and its consequences, that is a pure science fictional question. We've done this thing, now what? Is basically the question that I think half of science fiction film asks, and usually answers with, oh, it goes on a bloody rampage and kills us all, because right. that's what warnings are about. And among the people picking up the mantle of Mary Shelley is H.G. Wells. And 
the H.G. Wells portion of the 1930s is most of the rest of this segment. <laughs> and that starts with The Island of Lost Souls, uh, directed by Earl C. Kenton from 1932. And this, again, is that pattern of the scientist who uh, transgresses, breaks the rules. This time, it's not the line between uh, life and death, but the line between human and animal. Uh, he uh, spawns a bunch of animal people, puts them together in an island, and the result is so terrifying that the film is banned shortly after release and remains unavailable for decades. Yeah, and it is a shame because it is a very, very good film. Because Charles Lawton, even more than Colin Clive, Frankenstein, as Dr. Frankenstein, is a, a magnetic presence and provides that sort of touch of both Miltonic hero villain and also the level of pathos when everything goes south. Again, the, the, the source material, I think, is a little nicer to Dr. Moreau than the source material is to Victor Frankenstein, but, but the destruction of his animal utopia that he's created, or a manimal utopia, I guess, I mean, it, it's both legitimately terrifying, and you could understand why a British censor would shut it down, but it has an emotional core to it that I think not a lot of science fiction film has, and the best ones, and hopefully more of the ones that we talk about, will aim for, will say, we're asking a lot of abstract questions about human-animal breeding, but what about the human, you know, heart? And that, uh, as silly as that question sounds, it's answered resoundingly in The Island of Lost Souls, as well as, I mean, it's a pre-Hays Code film, and you can absolutely tell that, as well as uh, really hitting that theme of transgression hard, I guess I can say. Right. So, science fiction films of the 30s that are of interest, uh, including some that are only worth mentioning, continue to be about mad scientists. And so that's Dr. X by Michael Curtiz from 1932. Worth a look if you're a completist. It's not even in the top 20 of Curtiz movies. <laughs> no, it's not. And uh, The Invisible Ray, uh, directed by Lambert Hillier in 1936, uh, which is uh, Boris Karloff, uh, an astronomer who uh, discovers space radium and uh, uh, becomes monstrous and starts murdering people. Also, probably not in the top 10 of Boris Karloff films. Although the, the scientific conceit at the heart of The Invisible Ray is actually kind of clever and, and wonderful because the notion is that I mean, it's, it's one of the first films, it may be the first film ever to really play with relativity because uh, his super telescope catches light rays that came out into space millions and billions of years ago. So he can use his telescope as a time viewer to see things from the past. And this is malarkey, but it's Einsteinian malarkey, not regular malarkey, not 19th century malarkey, the way that Frankenstein or, or Moreau are. And so the, the, the central conceit of the invisible rays is actually very, very cool. The trouble is that the only thing he uses his time viewer to do is to find this wild radium X meteor that fell to earth in dinosaur times and then go get, as you mentioned, turned into a radioactive monster by it, which is, you know, what you need to happen for act three. Yeah. The other big genuine banger, uh, also an HG Wells adaptation, of course, and also directed by James whale is the invisible man from 1933, uh, with Claude rains and an indelible performance. And the, the suggestion here is not just that someone will, transgress science and the boundaries of that and will therefore everything will go wrong. But the, the very act of doing that is the thing that then tempts you to go on to commit other evil. And that it's just sort of an, an ineluctable doom spiral that you enter into by breaking that rule, not just 
you cause a lot of chaos, but that the act of that will morally degrade you into becoming a worse and worse person, uh, which is not, for example, the same trajectory of Victor von Frankenstein in, in the most of them. It's like they commit the transgression and that's the problem. But here the transgression is just the beginning of their own moral degradation because now limitations have been stripped not only from science, but now from themselves. They are no longer subject uh, in this case because the invisible man can become invisible. So he's no longer subject to the moral constraints of society. And that is what causes the catastrophe. And that, of course, comes out of the Wells novel, because Wells took it from Plato, who presents it as a thought experiment way back in the Republic, a thing called the Ring of Gyges, which was a magic ring that you put on and makes you invisible. And guess what? If you put on a magic ring that makes you invisible, you know what happens, Robin? Your soul is corroded. That was demonstrated thoroughly by Professor Tolkien and by H.G. Wells. And again, uh, very memorably by Claude Rains in James Wales' Invisible Man. Right. And and separately from Gollum, right? In, in Tolkien, it's like, it'll turn you invisible, which is great, mm-hmm. but it'll also turn you evil, so that's yeah. bad. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas uh, in uh, Wells and in the, the movie, it's the act of being invisible, of no longer being subject to social constraint, that then allows you to become evil. It doesn't turn you evil, but allows right. you... And that's and that's the platonic insight, is that... Yeah. that Ability to step outside society degrades you, right? The other thing that's happening in the 30s, before we get to uh, one that you consider a unalloyed classic, is the serials. And this is what brings in the sort of hopeful, fun, adventurous ray gun stuff that George Lucas will later pick up uh, when he reverses the all the cinema trends of the 70s to create Star Wars. And so there's The Phantom Empire, which is a, a Gene Autry science fiction serial. But even more to the point, there's uh, Flash Gordon and Buck Rogers, which are both adaptations of different uh, science fiction adventure comic strips. And they introduce the spaceships and the space villains and the space rays and all of those things that are part and parcel of space opera. Serials are what they are. They're early television before television sets existed. They have their own uh, sort of fun, kind of campy vibe to them. But they are, I think, probably have a lot more to do with uh, the kind of adventure stories that we tell in science fiction gaming after being filtered through Star Trek and Star Wars than any of the other films we're talking about this time around. Yeah, the, the Phantom Empire is the first science fiction serial. It's also the first science fiction Western, not that that matters. Gene Autry uh, plays a singing cowboy, and his ranch unbeknownst to him, is on top of a hollow, hollow-earth civilization of advanced beings. And whether they're hyper-evolved humans or aliens is sort of glossed over. The The, the serial literally doesn't care. He, they just have super technology. And he, a mere singing cowboy, must thwart their fell designs. Uh, I, I think you have to decide, I want to watch a singing cowboy before you watch The Phantom Empire. But once you, if you said yes... You are in for a thrill ride with the Phantom Empire. It set up a lot of decisions that later serial makers would do, that even later Westerns would do in in some ways. Uh, It's a remarkably influential piece of work. But, of course, when we're talking about influential serials, nothing compares to Flash Gordon. A young George Lucas saw the Flash Gordon serials, I think, 10 times all the way through when he was a kid, was, you know, absolutely hypnotized, took not just the sort of adventurous tenor of them, but film techniques like screen wipes and irising closes and all the other ways that the serial found to cut between the short, choppy, child's attention span length 
scenes without being dull. Those are insights done by a fellow named Frederick Stefani, who directed the film and unusually for a serial was also part of the production design team. He was a production designer by trade. And so if you are wondering why does Flash Gordon, despite an effects budget and a set budget that, you know, theoretically was one of the highest budgeted serials of all time, still looks to us dirt cheap. Why does it still work? Why is it effective? Why does it pull all that together? And I think a lot of that is actually Frederick Stefani doing vastly more work than he needed to, to make Flash Gordon really hang together. And there were two sequel serials. The second one is pretty good. The third one is not very good at all. Buster Crab, of course, is, as an actor, Robin, he is an excellent Olympic swimmer. That's what I'll say about Buster Crab. But nonetheless, a, a, a stalwart stunt performer. Yeah. Uh, and our policy here in the Essential series is if uh, one of us thinks something is essential and uh, the other maybe doesn't so much, uh, it's the one who thinks it's an essential who speaks up. So, Ken, you're going to conclude uh, this segment and this episode with a look at one of the two films by someone who was more famous as a production designer, in fact, invented the words production designer as a job title, Mm -hmm. uh, William Cameron Menzies from 1936. And it's another H.G. Wells adaptation of Things to Come. Yeah, uh, this is an essential in my mind for two reasons. One, it is one of the very few serious science fiction films of not just the 30s, but of the 20-year period between the coming of sound and the coming of the A-bomb. And also, once you adapt to its sort of lugubrious pace it's a snooze it becomes <laughs> sorry it's a snooze it becomes a, a a fairly compelling piece of work there was a genre of film that used to be very very common i think the godfather is the last time it was done successfully or godfather part two is is where you would take a whole family or a town and you would follow it through a, a, a period of decades or even centuries and that would be your movie And you would say, oh, look at those hilarious people in colonial times. Oh, now they're in cowboy times. Oh, now we're in the present. Look how human concerns remain constant. And that was a a genre of film that Things to Come is parodying, travestying, whatever you want to say. Because it's every town, which is literally called every town, is extending into the future. Metaphor land was taken. Right. And the family of a fellow named John Cabal is worried about the war and becomes a pilot. And that lets the Cabal family in on the aristocracy of pilots that will run the world after the atomic conflict or the, the great, I think it's a poison gas conflict, but it's, it's, it's devastating. There's a post-Holocaust situation and the fundamental devastation of the world, thanks to the future war is the problem that things to come is worried about because it's made, of course, in 1936, as everyone is gearing up for world war two and William Cameron Menzies and HG Wells both knew that world war one had not gone as planned and had been orders of magnitude uh, longer and more fatal. And obviously world war two would be even worse than that. And so things to come as a, is a warning about going to war and the technology rather than making war safer and better and faster would do the other thing would extend war and extend it, not just, you know, uh, in terms of its scope, but also in terms of its effects on the home front. And that this, this awfulness can only be stopped by the rational side of mankind, which of course is also science. So it's a it's an interesting double pronged uh, narrative in in Wells's book. Uh, the movie is you know as a snoozy as it is, Robin. It's a lot better than reading the book. <laughs> and the uh, and, and right. the notion of lead me to put it in historically important, right? Uh, not in essential. Yeah, but but it's 
But it's still, I feel like it's worth watching because it's part of that older tradition of film. It does look amazing. William Cameron Menzies, as you say, invented production design. Mm-hmm, yeah. And while it, uh, the, the acting is a bit stilted, I mean, Raymond Massey is who he is, but there is a, a banger of a, of a supporting cast. Ralph Richardson is in it. Cedric Hardwick is in it. It's just a lot of really great British actors and. It's a, uh, it's just a strong piece. And again, we watch science fiction film even today for the spectacle first. And it is a spectacle. And on that level alone, it becomes an essential. Okay. So next week we'll be back, hopefully with four segments. <laughs> Ideally. Well, we, had, we had, we had four segments this time, but two topics. Four different hopefully segments. With, uh, four topics. Next week we were going to, uh, we did the 30s. So logically speaking, in uh, Cinema Essentials, we'll move on to the next decade, the 1950s. Exactly. That might seem weird to you, but we'll explain it next week. And uh, so we'll just let you sit on tenterhooks for our explanation of why the 1940s didn't happen. And uh, we'll be back in seven days. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Asphagelm. Arc Dream. Dork Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Simple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Support our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Protect this podcast from Science Gone Awry alongside such protective backers as... Ian Nystrom. Joshua Randall. Yuri Horneman. Kelly Fisher. And Theron Bretz. Wear this show or drink it from a mug with Ken and Robin merch at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. Check out our new classic design, Unicorn with a Better Armor Class. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time, and once again, we will talk about stuff. <laughs> <laughs>